Heavenly Father, you are awesome. You are awesome. It is an awesome thing to be children of the living God, to be gathered into this place, to worship our King, to press into your word and the glories that are in Scripture. And I pray that as we look at one verse today, Father, you would, you would get our hearts into the posture, get my heart, Father God, as I, as I speak from your word, to, to speak truthfully, remove error from my mouth, Father God. Help me trust in you. And I pray for um, all of my friends today that, that they would have hearts that are receptive to whatever you have to say. And I pray that we would know that in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God, that we would know that all things were made through him, and that without him was not anything made that was made, that we would know that in him was life, and that that life was the light of men, and that particularly today, Lord, that we would know that the light shines into the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Help us to understand that today, Father God, and to feel the weight of those realities. In the name of Jesus, amen. So we have been exploring uh, for the past few weeks the prologue at the beginning of the Gospel of John, which is really a John's way of introducing to us Jesus Jesus of Nazareth, who John tells us was not simply a man. He was not simply a great teacher and a great leader that has been known historically, but Jesus is the Son of God. He is the eternal Word who was with God and was God at the beginning, through whom all things were made. That's Jesus. That's the person John spent three years of his life with. And in those first five verses, we see that. We also see that in him was life, and that life was the light of men. John depicts life in Christ, spiritual life in Christ as light, which brings us to verse 5, and this is where we're going to spend most of our time today. So verse 5 says this, um, The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Now, a uh, little front work here. I could spend 20 minutes and originally had planned to spend a good chunk of time explaining and articulating why some translations use the word comprehend where overcome is. The darkness has not comprehended it. Um, KJV, NKJV, NASB use comprehend here. Uh, the Greek words calib. Uh, Kela Mambambo, or I, yeah, it's something like that. Uh, and and, and the, the word itself can mean both. It's kind of like, like the Greek, or it's kind of like the English word gotcha. Like if you capture somebody, you overtake them, you could say, I got you. And if someone's telling you something and you comprehend it, you can say, I got you. Um, and I was going to spend a lot of time on that. I'm not going to. Um, if you have questions uh, about that word specifically and how we arrived at understanding that word here um, as overcome, which is the ESV's rendering of it, come and see me. I would love to spend 20 minutes 
showing you where I see this in the, uh, in the text and why we're going we're gonna to rest on overcome being John's intent here today. All right, so this is the verse that we're focusing on. Why did John write this verse? Why did John say, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it? What was his purpose? What do we need to see in this verse? This verse tells us three things, three massive things. They are three of the most fundamental and most important truths you could ever know about God and humanity, us. And they are all piled up here in this one small verse. I grew up in a church uh, where, and there was a lot of really great things about the church that I grew up in. Some of you guys know my story. Grew up in a church, ran from God for almost a decade, and then about 10, 12 years ago, came back to faith. And um, in those times, though, that I was in church early on, I was never taught what we're about to see today. I don't remember ever being taught it. I don't remember ever being taught these three realities in the way that we're going to see them today until about 10 years ago when I started to trust God again and everything changed. Everything changed for me when I saw these three realities. It was like a Copernican level revolution to me. Things that I'd never seen in God and in reality, I saw with clarity that I can't even begin to describe, but I'm going to do my best today in this verse. So we're going to go through each of these three truths. We're going to see how they relate to this specific verse, how they relate to God, and ultimately, personally, individually, how they infiltrate into our own lives. The first truth is this. So if you're a note taker, this would be number one. The first truth is that the ultimate purpose of God in everything he does is to display his glory. Everything he does, his purpose, his main ultimate purpose with a many secondary purposes in there is to display the radiance of his worth, to display the radiance of his beauty and his greatness, and his power. The main thing that God is after in every single event that's ever happened in human history, in every action ever taken, in every heartbeat, in every breath, is that all of creation would know and would enjoy his infinite glory. That's what he's after. That's the first truth that this passage proclaims. We see it in the words, the light shines. Talked about this last week. The light here is the light of Christ. It is the, the, the light of Christ, which is a picture of the glory of Jesus Christ. For example, if you drop your eyes down to John 1.14, just a few verses below this, John says, the word, same word that was in the first five verses, became flesh. And dwelt among us. That's Jesus. That's the light that John is talking about in verse 5. And we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father. A glory that is full of grace and truth. The light in verse 5 
is the glory of God, the Father, seen, experienced, encountered in His Son, Christ Jesus. That's the, that's the light. The glory of God is shining into the darkness, is what John is saying. Light and glory are the same thing. And, and you know this already because you frequently see glory and light interconnected in the Scriptures. Like, for example, uh, back in December when we were in Luke 2, and we saw in Luke 2 that when the angels appeared, the glory of the Lord, Lord shone around them. That was depicted as a kind of radiance, a kind of, uh, of, of light that beamed. It, but glory isn't just visible brightness. It isn't just light. Glory is the word that Scripture uses when it wants to describe the worth or value of something when that value is shown. So if you want to describe the greatness of someone's power, the greatness of someone's beauty, that's what you're referring to. You're referring to glory. And in this case, that glory belongs to God and is seen through his son. And so when the light of Christ shines in the darkness in verse five, it is God manifesting his worth and his beauty through his own son. And that manifestation is called glory. And we see this throughout many places in the book of John. In fact, the glory of Christ is a central theme, and you'll see this in the coming weeks. Next series, for example, is going to be called He Manifested His Glory because Jesus begins to show who he really is. And that line is taken from John 2.11 when it said that when he turned water in wine, the first of his miracles that he ever did, that was a manifestation of his glory. That's John's own words. John 7, 18, John tells us that Jesus is only seeking the glory of his Father. That's why he does what he does. That's why he says what he says. In John eleven four, one of Jesus' closest friends, Lazarus, dies. Why did he die? Jesus tells us he died for the glory of God. He died so that the Son of God might be glorified through it, through his resurrection four days later. John 12 and John 13, Jesus explicitly says, I came for one reason. You want to know why I came? You want to know why Jesus came? I came to die on a cross for the glory of God. That's why I did it. My main goal in dying was to glorify and magnify my Father. And there are actually many, many, many more. We could spend hours going through that. And then if you just turn to the Bible, like just so widen the, the, the lens to include all of the, the, the scriptures everywhere in the Bible, we see this. Anytime you see for the sake of his name, and that's all over the place, for the sake of his name, anytime you see for the glory of God, every time a psalmist presses us in to worship God, commands us to rejoice in God, be glad in God, to magnify him, every time Paul invites us into a doxology of praise in the middle of his letter. And every time someone gives their life for the sake of Jesus Christ, you are witnessing in that moment God's unwavering pursuit of his own glory. God is seeking worshipers, John 4 will tell us, who worship him in spirit and truth, who see him and embrace him for who he really is. That's his main pursuit. That's God's main pursuit. This is this is huge because I never saw this for years. I never saw this for years. That above every other thing in the universe, including good things like family, like love, 
like peace in the world, including those things, the most important thing that God is after, the thing that he cannot deny himself is his own glory. And many of us uh, may see these words in the scripture, like this, is, this was me earlier, I'd see them and I'd think that they were kind of like a poetic garnish. They weren't really the main thing, but they are. They're not everywhere in the Bible just because they're framing something else. They are the center of the frame. And then when we make the connection, like this story is not about us. I am not about me anymore. The Bible is constantly telling us it's ultimately about him. It is ultimately about him. And what people, a lot of people don't realize, I didn't realize, is that when you, when you try to anchor Christianity in any of these other secondary things, though they're beautiful, and make it about the secondary thing, even if it's like love or a personal relationship with Christ, which is massive, you can't experience this without it, and you fail to see the glory that he is pursuing in it all, we fail to see the main point of his love. And, and, and the reason we have to love him in his glory. Um, and unlike us, I mean, I think we think about somebody pursuing their glory, it's kind of off-putting, right? The idea that someone is pursuing their glory is not a pleasant thought. But God, unlike us, can and should feel this way about his glory because it is objectively this good, this awesome, this amazing. He is this glorious, he really is every single bit as wonderful as he says he is in his word. And to deny himself this would be to deny reality. It would be to become a liar and play down something that cannot be played down. And God will not do that. Furthermore, just think about it from this perspective, everything we love in the world, everything you love, everything you cherish, whether it's a steak dinner, whether it's the fact that we have amazingly a blue sky right now after a week of overcast skies, whether it's, it's going for a hike, whatever it might be, whatever you enjoy in your life right now, no matter how valuable it is to you personally, its value and its beauty is contingent. It hangs on the glory of God. Like it's not intrinsically glorious. It's glorious because he made it that way. All other glories that we enjoy rise or fall on God's worth, on God's beauty. He made them. He sustains them every millisecond of their existence. Everything good that we love in this world comes from his hand, and that's the reason the light shines. God's glory matters more than anything else in the world. Remember how Jesus taught us to pray. Do you remember this? Jesus taught us to pray a specific way. The first thing we're to ask God for is what? Do you guys remember? Our, God our Father in heaven. Hallowed be thy name. On the top of Jesus' list of things that we need to pray for, the first thing that comes out of your mouth should be, hallowed be your name. May your name be cherished and honored and magnified. May people consider you for who you really are and glorify your name. And it's worth, like when we see Jesus say that, contemplating, do our prayers begin like that? Do our prayers have any of that in it? Like a pursuit 
of the glory of God because that was everything to Jesus. That was everything to Jesus. And you look at the Apostle Paul, for example, he felt the same way about the glory of God. 1 Corinthians 10.31 famously tells us, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all. Do all. And I take that word all, three letters, but I take it to mean everything. Do all for the glory of God, to the glory of God. Paul was governed and constrained by pursuit of God's glory and everything. So much so that he's writing a letter and he just immediately like sidelines what he's talking about and says, I need to worship God for a moment. Come with me. And just elicits this doxology in the middle of a letter. Uh, let me give you an example. Romans 11. I mean, 11 chapters in, one of the greatest pieces of literature ever written in human history has changed Western civilization multiple times. He stops and says, let's praise and worship God for a second. And then says this, Oh, the depths of the riches and the wisdom and knowledge of God. I can't help, he can't help himself. He cannot stop and say, let me just get this letter done. He has to say this, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable are his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who can be his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him, through him, and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Paul says, from him, through him, and to him are everything. And therefore, to him, to him, to him be the glory forever. God inspired to, Paul to write this line because God desires for us to feel what Paul felt when he wrote it. That's why this is in the Bible. And this is what it means for the light to shine in the darkness. God is doing what he's always done. He's always shown his glory in creation and now in John 1.5 through his son, through his, through his son Christ Jesus, he is displaying his glory so that he would be honored and cherished and enjoyed and embraced as the treasure that he really is. Literally, and I say this with confidence, I did not see this for a long time, literally Nothing else matters more in the universe than this. And this truth, once it grips you, once it anchors into your being, and you see the world through this lens, it changes everything. It's not about me anymore. It's not. I'm not about me anymore. It's not about my family, though I love them and would die for them. It's not about any group that I'm associated with, my work, my, my friends, it's not about that ultimately anymore. It's not about 7.8 billion human beings on this planet who are wonderful creatures. It's not about them ultimately. And it's not about the entire cosmos. It is ultimately about him. That's what this is all about. That truth is number one. That's the light the glory of God, the Father, seen in his Son, treasured and embraced. So that's the truth number one. What's the second truth that we see in this text? Kenyo, could you go back to that first slide? <laughs> the second truth is this. So the light shines in the darkness, 
and the darkness has not overcome him. The second truth is in the darkness itself. What is it? Why does darkness exist? And this truth, again, once you see it, once it grips you, changes everything in your life. If the eternal word is the light in this passage, and we know that it is, if that's who Christ Jesus really is, why does the darkness have to exist in verse 5? Like, why do we need that? Like, what, what's the deal with the darkness? And the answer is in what the darkness actually is. If the light here in verse 5 represents the glory of God, the Father, being displayed through his Son, then the darkness is the absence of that glory. It is the rejection and denial of that glory. Which, if you've been with us for the last few weeks, this is not a new piece of information for you. We saw in Romans 1 a few weeks ago that mankind naturally has rejected the glory of God. We've rejected the light. Romans 1.23 says we, 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 we've exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images of creation. That's what every human being does. We don't look at the creator, we look at his stuff. We look at his things and we deny the worth and beauty of the creator in order to embrace what he made. It's a natural inclination and it leads to darkness. It is what darkness is. That's how the Bible describes us lacking the glory of God. It's called darkness, the absence of light is a blindness, voluntary, blindness to his worth. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, our gospel is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world, that's Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers. Why did he do that? To keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. It's the same exact thing that we see in John 1, 5. So this darkness in verse 5 that the light is shining into is the absence of seeing and delighting and enjoying God and his glory. It's to seek joy, ultimate joy, in other things. Not wrong to seek joy in things in this world at all, as long as that joy is properly connected to the source of those things, and that's God. And this is a constant in the human experience. Our lives are driven by a desire to be pleased and to, to enjoy things. Our, our lives are driven by a desire to be happy. We want to be comfortable. That's why we have things like air conditioners, fans, we want to feel pleasure. That's why we enjoy good food and drink. This is a constant of the human experience. And our lives are driven by a pursuit of joy. And what darkness is, is when we pursue it ultimately in a thing that can never deliver what our hearts really need. And that's, if, I mean, Fundamentally, that is the essence of sin. It is to pursue something that cannot possibly fulfill our needs. It is to forsake the life-giving, this is Jeremiah 2.12, the life-giving fountain 
of joy that is in, found in knowing God and treasuring him and to trade it for a broken cistern called anything that he made. And what John 1.5 tells us amazingly is that God has seen fit despite the darkness, not to keep us in darkness, but to shine the light of his glory through his son, through Christ, into the darkness of our broken pursuits of joy that cannot satisfy. He's seen fit to do that. That is an amazing thing. He did not need to do that. The ultimate, the source of ultimate joy in the human experience is not found in creation. It's not. It is found only in the Creator. He alone can fill the needs of our hearts to be happy, to have joy, to have full and lasting joy. For example, Psalm 1611, you guys know this, we've, we've said this one many times, says it probably clearest in the Bible. In your, in God's presence, there is fullness of joy. Say that with me. Fullness of joy. And at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. There's nothing greater than that. Fill joy all the way up as far as it can go and give it to me forever. You know what that's called? God. In your presence, nothing else can provide this joy in, in, in all of creation, in our lives. And so if God's glory is the greatest treasure in the universe, if, if his worth, being in his presence, experience him, is the greatest joy in the universe, then we can see now clearly that his pursuit of his own glory is actually a commitment to the greatest act of love he could possibly give us. And John 1.5 is huge because he looks into the darkness and he says, I'm not going to give up on that. I'm not going to give up on you. I know that humanity has rejected my glory in creation. I know that. But now I'm going to show my glory through my son. That's what John 1.5 tells us. Now you may have noticed something at the opening in the prologue of John's gospel. This is just an aside here. That it starts, the opening of his gospel is very similar to another book in the Bible. Does anybody know what book that is? Say it. Genesis. Genesis is very similar to the book of Genesis, the very beginning of the scriptures. This is not an accident. John didn't just suddenly come up with something that was identical by accident. This is by design. And when John begins, in the beginning was the word, and Moses begins Genesis with, in, begin, in the beginning, God, they are developing a parallel account of what happened at the very beginning of history. And what's interesting about this is that that book, Genesis, shines light on what we're looking at today, no pun intended. It pictures, envisions light shining in the darkness at the beginning of history. And I want to just look at the language here because it's so critical as we go into John to see this. Um, we get an amazing and surprising picture, glimpse of John 1.5 thousands of years before John would even write it. Genesis 1 verse 3. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. 
And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And then it says, (laughs) and there was evening first, and there was morning, and that was the first day. Have you ever wondered why that is written that way? Like there was evening and then there was morning and that was the first day. Isn't that backwards? I mean, we start our day in the morning, right? And God's saying, no, it's not backwards. That's the way I did it. Evening, morning, darkness, light, night, dawn. That's the way I do things. And he did. God spoke into the darkness and created Light, the evening and the morning happen in that sequence for a reason. Normal, get this, this is amazing. Normal mundane night and day cycles are a parable of John 1, 5. Light shining into the darkness. And we know this because John does not shy away from using night and day language in his gospel for more than mere chronological reference. For example, in John 13.30, Judas and the other disciples are at the table. This is the darkest moment in John's gospel, even before Jesus died. Jesus is looking into the face of his betrayer. And tells him, I know what you're going to do. And then John writes this. After Jesus gives him a morsel of the bread, so after receiving the morsel of bread, he, Judas, immediately went out. And John says, and it was night. It was night. Out of nowhere. That he, there's Judas. He's going to betray Jesus. This is the, the, the dip in the gospel where things were going awesome, things were looking great, this is the Son of God, he's come, and now he's about to be murdered, and this is where it all begins. And out of nowhere, John says it was night. It was night. I mean, he doesn't drop chronological time frame references everywhere. This is very, very weird for him to do that. Night, in John's view, isn't just a, a reference of time. Night, in John's view is a statement about Judas's unbelief and the darkness that's about to take place in this gospel. Which is why, if you flip all the way to the end of the book, after Jesus has died and resurrected and shown himself several times now to his disciples, the disciples go out and they're frustrated. They miss him. They go out and Peter's like, I'm going to go fishing. They go out and they fish all night long. And then in John 21, 4, we get this line. Just as day was breaking, Jesus, who has conquered death at this point, stood on the shore. At daybreak, at morning, John is showing us in just those subtle cues, light is shining into the darkness through Jesus. The evening will come but it will be before the day. Day will come after. Evening and morning are a parable for John 1, 5, and it's hinting at the reality that we all know. We feel it inside us. One day, there will be no more night. 
one day there won't be any more darkness. So let's review these two truths that we've seen before we shift and pivot to the third truth. Truth number one was that God pursues his glory in everything he does. This is his main purpose. This is his main pursuit. This is his ultimate goal. It's the ultimate goal of reality. That's the light that's shining. Truth number two is this. We all pursue joy. We are driven by a desire to be glad and happy, but we don't naturally pursue it in God. We pursue it in what he's made, and that is the darkness that the light is shining into. That's what John 1.5 is envisioning in the front end of that sentence. But that isn't all that John 1.5 says, and this is huge. John 1.5 shockingly says that the darkness has not overcome the light. That word is catalambano. came into my mind as I'm reading it. Catalambano is the word for overtake, overcome. And John's saying darkness hasn't done it. The darkness has not overcome the light. <clears throat> because that's really the tension here. Like you're reading this verse. The tension in this verse is that the light's shining. There's darkness. What's going to happen next? What's going to happen? This is a question we all have to ask because each of us know deep down inside we're kind of in this verse. This isn't a, an abstract reality that's out here floating and we're kind of just watching it happen. We're in this verse. We're in the darkness. We need the light. Like this is a massively personal and individual reality because we looked last week, Ephesians 5 says, before Christ had anything to do with us, we were darkness. That's how he describes us, Paul. And the reason John can have this hope, this confidence that the darkness does not win is because he knows something about God. When we ask the question, will the darkness win at the end of the day, John is telling us, no, it will not. The darkness will not win. It will never win. There will never be a time when the darkness overcomes the light. That's the purpose of the second half of this verse. And John knows this because he knows the third truth that changed my view of all of Scripture and reality forever. And that truth is that the light wins because the light is in control. The light wins because the light is sovereign. God is sovereign. This is where John gets his confidence to say this statement. He has no grounds to say it unless he knows, unless he knows that this is going to happen. John knows that God is sovereign. He, he knows that God's not simply like hoping it turns out good for us in the end. He knows that God has seen to it absolutely and completely that the darkness will not have the final word. He is guaranteeing it right here. And we see the theme of God's sovereignty throughout the book of John, and we're going to see it more and more. Um, I mean, there's plenty of different instances. The, the most compelling, in my opinion, is the one that comes up in John 10, when Jesus tells his disciples that he's the good shepherd and he has all of his sheep in his hands. And then he says in John 10, 29, right, he says, no one can snatch my sheep, my disciples, my people out of my hand. And he tells us why. He wants us to know why. He doesn't just say that 
and say, well, I hope you're right. He says that, and he says, let me tell you why. Verse 29, my father who has given them to me is greater than all. And again, three letters, but I take him to mean every single thing or person or being or desire or anything greater than everything. My father who's greater than all and no one, he says, no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hands. What we call that is sovereignty. To be able to say that and for it to be true means you're right. Your father is actually greater than all. He is sovereign. John is painting a picture of God in his gospel and in this passage in particular, a God who is not limited by anyone or anything, ever. Never is he limited. And God tells us this not only in the Gospel of John, but really throughout all of Scripture. This is a repeated theme of who he is. And I'm going to read a few in a second. So, Canyon, get ready. We're going to launch through these things, and it's going to be fast. There's a lot. Um, but again, just as an aside, before we even get to these, growing up in church, I never heard any of this. I knew he was sovereign. But then I was taught 10,000 other things about him that devalued his ability to bring the light into the darkness unfailingly at the end. And that caused me huge problems. Seeds of doubt of whether or not God could keep me from sin that I was struggling with, whether God could keep me from all-out failure in certain parts of my life, whether God was even there thinking about me, kept me out of that. But knowing this God changes all of that. He is in control. It doesn't matter what happens in my life. It doesn't matter what happens in my life. He's sovereign. And uh, if you're like me, looking at John 1.5, and you're saying, all right, I get it. I sin. I am darkness. I can tell. Just my affections are never towards God. They're always towards all sorts of other things. I am darkness, and I know how horrible my sin is. I know how, how bad I really am more than anybody else knows. I know these things, and I know that God is beautiful and glorious and wonderful, and I should love him. I'm desperate to know. I am desperate to know, will the light win? Will it win? And God has given us the following passages so that we would know. His light's going to win. Psalm 135. For I know that the Lord is great and that our Lord is above all other gods. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does. Stop for a second. Whatever he pleases, he does. Nothing is done by a sovereign God that he is not pleased to bring about, even if it's ruination in certain ways. And it's there's struggle in it. There is, he sees the full picture in ways that we cannot understand. We cannot comprehend. It is inscrutable. This verse says, and many other verses say, whatever the Lord pleases, he does. In heaven and on earth, in, all, in the seas and all the deeps. Job 42, Job says to God face to face, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Limitations three, who has spoken and it came to pass 
unless the Lord has commanded it. Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that good and bad come? Isaiah 45. I am the Lord, and there is no other. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. I've got so many of these on here, I lost my place. Isaiah 43. I am he. There is none who can deliver from my hand. I work and who can turn it back. Proverbs 19. Many are the plans in the mind of a man. So we have many plans up here. Many of them. Desires, activities. Many are the plan of the mind of, man, mind of man. But it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. Proverbs 16. The lot is cast into the lap. The die is thrown on the floor. A random circumstance happens. And we find out that it's not random. It's every decision is from the Lord. In Isaiah 46, which is where we'll end this passage reading on, I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me. What isn't like you? Why are you so unique, God? Well, let me tell you, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. I have spoken, and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed, and I will do it. This is our God. This is a self-description of a God who has zero limitations and can accomplish his will at absolute perfection. And can I be real with you? This is why John can say, I know that the darkness will never overcome the light. This is why he can say that. And this is the greatest news in the world. When you see it for what it is, it is the greatest news in the world. That our God is sovereign and has not left John 1.5 up to chance in our lives or in the world that, that even the very darkness at the end of the day will serve his purpose in the end is great news. The darkness in, in John 1.5 shows us the contrast, the relief, the, the, the light um, that's seen in the beauty and the power and the glory of God. Night, spiritually speaking, tells us that one day dawn will break and there will never be night again. My little girl lately Asked, every once in a while, she'll come and she'll ask me like one of the deepest, she asked Rachel first and then she asked both of us, deepest possible theological question. Um, and this is, her question this, this, this uh, week was, why did God make Satan if he knew that Satan was going to do all the, the bad things he did and so much pain was going to enter in the world? God knew that. She knows that God knows these things. Why did he still make Satan? It's a great question. It's a great question for a nine-year-old little girl to ask. <laughs> um, John 1.5 tells us the answer. Though we are certainly responsible for our sin, though we, were, we are certainly responsible for the, for the moral darkness that we have invaded into this world with and we've preoccupied ourselves with, in God's inscrutable wisdom, 
there is a kind of love found in his glory that can be only experienced when we see John 1, 5 happen, light shining into the darkness. In his wisdom, he has seen fit to show his glory in the most beautiful and wonderful way. And in order for that to happen, God saw fit for in his plan, not by his own doing, not from him coming any sin, there would be darkness in this world that his light would shine into. And this is why Jesus came into the darkness. This is why Jesus on the cross was smothered seemingly by that darkness. And at dawn on the third day, this is why he rose, so that you and I would be free from this darkness forever. So that we would recognize that our highest joy isn't in anything we own. It isn't in anything we have in our life, anything the world could offer. Our highest joy is found in Christ himself, in God. There is no greater joy than that. And this is the amazing thing about God's glory. To pursue God's glory, like for us to pursue God's glory in this world, is not a mindless, and we kind of have to decouple ourselves from maybe some things that we've been taught in the past. For us to say, I pursue God's glory with every breath of my body, is not a, a, a mindless worship statement that we just say. It's not a catchphrase that Christian athletes use. To, to say that my life has one goal, the glory of God ultimately, is to say, I actually really want to be happy. I mean really happy. Forever. I don't want just like 70 or 80 years of ups and downs with occasional moments of pleasure. I want to be really happy for all eternity. I want full joy that lasts forever. And in the gospel, when Christ came and died and rose again on the third day, God is saying to us, that's not only possible, like full and lasting joy is not only possible, but I'm going to make it happen sovereignly. I'm entering into the picture and I'm going to put my sovereign power at work so that you will know true joy for all eternity. The sovereignty of God is the greatest thing in the world if that's his mission, for me to see his glory and to enjoy him as I ought to. And that's what the cross of Christ accomplished. That's what Jesus dying on the cross did. The cross is the brightest point of the light of Christ shining into the darkness, shouts into our hearts, sinful and broken though they may be, and says, I'm not finished with you. I'm not finished with you. My light will have the last word. And in Revelation 21, when we get to the very end of the Bible, we are shown a glimpse of what this will look like. What happens after the evening we call human history comes to an end and light shines? John tells us, same John that wrote his gospel. In the city, he says, the city that we will be in, the city that we will be, has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for The glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb, Jesus Christ. By its light, the nations walk. 
and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day. And guess what? There will be no night there. Night's gone. Darkness is gone forever. And the reason there is no more night anymore is because God has purposed. Who can turn it back? His counsel shall stand. He's promised it, and he will bring it to pass. And so as we take communion here in the next few moments, and we take the elements, the cup, and the, and the bread, I'd ask that you just get your hearts into a place, a worshipful place, where we recognize that the elements are very, very much a picture of the light shining into the darkness. That's Christ. Body, broken, blood, shed for us. That's the cross. The moment when Christ made sure that the darkness would never overcome the light by paying for that victory with his own blood. Let's pray. It is an awesome thing. I mean, when I think back to the broken ways that I've viewed you, Father, it is an awesome thing that your grace, constantly pressing us into the scriptures, desires for us to have a greater understanding of who you are, how worthy you are, how glorious you are, how strong you are to bring about your purposes in our lives. I pray that these would not be abstract thoughts or realities, that these would not be just things that we hold as theological points on a sheet of paper, but Father, that you would take these words and and invade our souls as we worship, as we celebrate communion. Help us to see you as you really are, the greatest treasure in the universe, and that your glory is what we've been looking for our whole lives, that we wouldn't be preoccupied with lesser joys, but we would say, I I have one pursuit in this world, and it's the glory of God. I, I I want to be happy. I want to be happy. And Father, that we would know and be confident at the end of the day that that the light isn't going to just flicker a bit and then go out and then that's it. But the hope we have and what we know of our God is that the light will win in the end. My darkness will not have the final say. You've promised us in your word. I pray that that reality would become real to each one of us today, Father God, in the name of Christ Jesus. Amen.